You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. I have a memory that is ingrained in my head from when I was, I don't know, 10 years old. Uh, 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 an instance between, a conversation between myself and my father. Those of you who are 10 years old, maybe something similar has happened to you recently, but we used to ride bikes around my hometown of Chatham-Kent. And it wasn't like today. We would just go wherever we wanted to go and come back at some point that day. Okay, we would just go in the morning and then my mom would say, just come home at some point. Things have changed drastically from when I was a kid. Now, that was a little small town in Chatham. But uh, I don't think I'd be comfortable with my children doing that, but that's just the way it was in, uh, growing up in Chatham. However, we had a carport at our house. We didn't have a garage. We had a carport, and we had a minivan. And whenever my dad pulled the minivan in this carport, there was just a little bit of space between the posts in the side of the minivan. And one day coming home with my bike, I had one of those bikes that with the exposed metal handlebar. No, there was no plastic on it. It was just a metal handlebar. It used to be really hot in the summer when you'd grab it. Well, I lost balance as I was coming into beside the van, and I put a scratch about six inches long all, all down the side of the minivan. Now, this was no Ferrari. It was a Dodge Grand Caravan. (laughs) Sometimes I think I'm not becoming my parents, but we have a Dodge Grand Caravan that's dark blue as well. And so did we when I was a kid. But I put a six-inch scratch along the side of the minivan. Now, being a good son, of course, I went and reported this to my parents, told them exactly what had happened, and... I didn't do any of that. I saw it, and I immediately tried to cover up with spit. That didn't make, it made it worse, because now you could see it. I proceeded to grab a dark blue Sharpie to try and color in my error. And I thought by the end, you know what? It looks pretty good. That's about as good as I can do. Well, it didn't fool my dad. My dad is the kind of person who would notice something like that, a scratch on the side of his van. And not too long after, I uh, heard my dad come in and call my name, and I immediately knew what was about to go down. My dad came to me and said, Aaron, did you put a scratch on the side of my van? Very seriously. My dad could, my dad owned the, I'm going to make you, I'm not going to yell. I'm going to make you feel so bad for what you did, though. He owned it by looking just disappointed. He had the disappointed dad look down that crushed your spirits. He looked at me disappointed. Aaron, did you put a scratch inside of my van? And again, as a good son, you, I came clean. You would think I would, you know, 
Yes, Dad, I put, I'm sorry. I didn't do that, though. I said, no, one of my brothers did it. Again, my dad saw straight through my lying and deceit. And I got the old-fashioned form of discipline. And before that, though, before he, before I got disciplined for it and got sent to my room, I remember these words like they were yesterday. He looked me in the eye and said, Aaron, I'm not mad at you because you scratched my van. I'm mad at you because you didn't tell me the truth. It's a good father thing to say. And then I got spanked anyway, so. We're in a tough passage this morning, you know, one where God uh, disciplines probably in a way that's shocking. But it's a passage that's full of deceit and untruth, one where People could have come clean if they had the chance, but decided to hide the truth. And even though it's a, I would describe it as a shocking passage, it's meant, I believe it's meant to expose our own hearts as we read it. It's like a jolt. It's, it's so shocking to us. I think it's supposed to jolt us out of our sleep and be like, whoa, am I serious about this faith that I say that I have? Like, what is my attitude when I come to worship God? I think it's supposed to expose our own hearts in a very inconvenient and uncomfortable way about what is the state of our faith. Now, this story, this passage is a tale of two contrasts. It's a real church, so it's the same church, same people, but it's, it's, it's a tale of two contrasts that begins in a really healthy, encouraging way, and then it drastically shifts in the second half of the narrative. But it's a real church in a real place, and what I like about it, even though it is shocking and a little bit uncomfortable, well, not just a little bit uncomfortable, it's a lot uncomfortable, what I love about it is because it doesn't just tell of the niceties of church, that we get to come together and hang out and, and eat cake and have potlucks and do the Baptist church thing, but there's a reality of church that exists even in this early church. And these two passages that contrast so much, they're meant to be read together. And no, Colin, as Colin spoke last week, we're not skipping it just because it's hard. And hopefully you know by now we don't skip it just because something is hard. We want to be exposed to the Word of God and all of its complexities and wrestle with it because I think that's why it's there. Solely because it's not pretty doesn't mean that we, we're just going to like ignore that it's there. Because the Holy Spirit through a person called Luke means for us to read it and meditate, it, meditate on it this morning. So I'm going to read the first half now. Chapter 4 verse 32 to 37 says this. Talking about this church. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. What a beautiful statement. Wish that were true about every church, but it's probably more untrue than true. And no one said, this is radical, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. How about that? 
They had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Let me read that again. What a crazy statement. In this group of people, which were now numbered in the thousands, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Man. What an encouraging passage. A snapshot of a, of a real church in a real place in a real time. And man, this church was, this church was bumping. Like this church was a good church to be a part of. We see a snapshot in time of, of, of not just this church, but one of the great shifts that's supposed to happen when we come to faith in Jesus. And it's a shift of ownership. You know, it's one of the greatest radical shifts that's supposed to take place when you come to faith in Jesus. You go from a place where maybe you say, my life is my own and my things are my own to use as I see fit. But once we come to faith in Jesus, that's not true anymore. We say, no, my life is not my own. My life is in the hands of God and the things that God has given to me to steward, I'm to use for his glory and for the betterment of the people around me. That's a big shift. Now it's not just like, hey man, it's my stuff. I can do whatever I want with it. It's mine. That's not Christian. That's one of the greatest shifts that happens when someone says, I'm, I'm a Christian. Now you're saying, my life is not my own anymore. I've been bought at a price. I'm giving up my life because I want the life of Jesus inside of me. And that's in its essence what it means to be a Christian. It's one of ownership. God has given me all these things, even people, not just stuff, people in my life, my children in my life, for his glory. You know, that's what it means when we declare Jesus as Lord, right? We're saying, I don't wear the crown of my life anymore. I'm not the Lord, I'm not the king. Jesus is the Lord and king. I'm going to take the crown off my... Whenever someone says, I'm a Christian, that's, in, in fact, we should almost do that. Like, you take the crown off your head and we lay it at the feet of Jesus because that's, in essence, what it means to be a Christian. When we say, Jesus, you are Lord, I'm not the Lord of my life anymore. And we have these radical things happening because people are now saying, well, I'm not, my stuff's not my own. My life's not my own anymore. Well, imagine in that church, like, imagine the parents of those people. Imagine your kid coming to you who's just been, who's just bought a house and said, Mom, Dad, I'm going to sell it. And I'm not going to invest it for myself. I'm going to give it to someone else. What are you going to say as a parent? That is the craziest thing, worst idea that I, you have ever come up with, right? And yet it was true in this passage. That's what was happening. You know, the irony is, I think, when we talk about the shifts of Christianity from ownership, my life is not my own. The irony is, I think, the lie that we believe that we can fall back into, that the world generally believes, is that 
If I live for myself, then I'll be happy. But the story of history suggests something very differently. That as we live for ourselves and claim things for ourselves, we tend to take advantage and use the people and things in our life to bring us something that Ecclesiastes says is smoke. It's like we try to grab onto it, but we can't seem, to, can't seem to hold it. It never brings us what we think it's going to bring us. And so we don't enjoy the things. We don't hold them loosely. We don't hold our kids loosely before God. We tend to exploit them to say, you're supposed to bring me happiness in my life, and you don't seem to be doing that. Rather, we have, as Christians, we have this view of God that God has given us, things that we hold on to loosely. Even our own children, our own spouses, that we hold on to loosely, that we're supposed to actually enjoy and not exploit for our own happiness. And if we give those things to God, the message of the Bible is, you will be happy. You'll be satisfied because you view the world in the way that you're supposed to view it. We see these radical things happening in this passage. You know, the joyous generosity doesn't seem to be coming from ownership. You know, joy doesn't seem to be coming from, I can, because I, I own something. And man, this is big in our world. You know how much a field is in Waterloo region? <laughs> like, like millions for a field. You know how badly I want to own land in North Dumfries and get out of Cambridge and live like 10 minutes down the road? And having the realization that that's, that's not going to happen. <laughs> like never going to happen in Waterloo Region. We're pretty spoiled if that's my biggest fear in life. Uh, but even for those of you men, like there's who don't own right now, and you're like the, the temptation is to believe that once I own something, then I'll be happy with my life. It's just not true. In fact, in this passage, what we found is joy is found in giving things away and not, not attaining, not in building up. Through these willing acts of charity, these selling of possessions, crazy acts of charity, we see going on in this passage this amazing picture of life where it says everyone was in, of one heart and one soul. Grace was upon this church. And this radical statement of there was not a needy person there in the th thousands of people and there was not a needy person among them. We've never seen that throughout history. You know, society has been trying to conquer this problem for, for generations have never been able to solve the problem. And yet we see in the generous acts of people who've been radically changed by God now living a life the way it was intended to live, who have solved the problem and destroyed the walls of inequity from those who have and those who do not have. Now everyone has as much as they need through the generous charity of those who've been radically changed by the gospel. There's no needy people. Now again, I want to back up a little bit and say this. This is one of the reasons why I ultimately don't believe in tithing anymore. Tithing is a word called a tax, used in the Old Testament. That's what a tithe was. It was a tax that was placed upon you for the, not just for worship, but it was also used in just the bureaucracy of, of, of Jerusalem in, Israel, in ancient Israel. I try not to use the word 
tithe because of that reason. I don't believe it exists anymore. Now we are called to just cheerfully give to the needs that are around us. However much God places on your heart to give. This wasn't some utopian dream or some communist rule in church. This, this, this was driven by the generosity of saints who see the world very differently. These are real people who are called to generously give for more than themselves and their own gain. And that's a life-changing experience. We have an example in the passage of a man who was called Joseph. Was, that was his common name. Joseph was a very common name. I don't know if this was a nickname or not, but he's also called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Barnabas was sold a field, placed the earnings before the apostles' feet and says, it's yours, do with it wherever there is need. It's my, my, this field is not mine. It's in the hands of God. He's called me to sell this field. Brings it to the apostles to distribute for whatever need is there. And it seems like that generous act didn't stop there. This isn't the last we hear of Barnabas. If you keep reading through the book of Acts, Barnabas not only, not only gives of his stuff, where does he go? He gives of his entire life. Barnabas travels with another man named Paul and goes around all, the world, all of that known world to preach the gospel, to plant churches, to develop leaders. If you've ever heard of mission trips with Paul and Barnabas, this is Barnabas. You know, I'm kind of tempted to think that it, this is kind of where it started for Barnabas. You know, it started with this sacrifice of, man, I'm called by God to give this away. And it grew from there to be like, God is calling me to go to the ends of the earth to preach the message of the gospel. And I'm almost kind of tempted to think this, that if Barnabas says no to God here, he probably would have never gone overseas to share the gospel. Because this type of joyous generosity, it's contagious. You know, sometimes you think, like, even in my own life, like, God, how do I give my life away to do something radical? Well, it doesn't start with, you know, going to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel. It starts with maybe a small, generous offer that is inconvenient and uncomfortable for you to give. But joyous generosity is contagious. You know, it's hard to believe that generosity, especially generosity that might be uncomfortable and inconvenient for you, it's hard to believe that that's going to bring you joy until you've actually started to do it. Until you catch that, 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 that sense of life that's like, man, this is what life is all about. And Barnabas eventually gives away his entire life for the cause of the gospel. Man, how do I give all of myself to give Aaron? How do I do this? How do, how, how do we do this as a church? Well, I think you have to start now and say, God, what in my life today are you calling me to give? Like, how do I shift my view from solely myself and looking after myself to those around me? Maybe it just starts with something small today. And it grows from there. You know, we have a fund in the church that I opened up especially for today. Again, because... I mean, half the passage is just is, is this. We have a fund in the church called Open Hands. If you want to give, it's restoration-church.ca. Open Hands is not toward the regular administration behind the church. Open Hands is an in and out uh, fund. Whatever is given by the church is used for benevolent reasons for those who are needy in the church or potentially outside of the church. 
you want to give to open hands, you're welcome to do that, whatever God has laid on your heart. Maybe that's it today. Maybe you're like, man, Aaron, I don't know how to give away my entire life to God, but I'll start there. Maybe I'll give something that's inconvenient for me or uncomfortable to give today and see what happens. I'd encourage you to do that. Okay. Now you might be saying, Aaron, you're avoiding the passage. Maybe I am. Because here's the contrast. That was the good part of the passage. Okay, That was the good example. Barnabas sells a field. Here's church. Give it away to those who are in need. We see an example of life the way it was intended to be lived here on earth. Here's the contrast. And why I think the contrast is important. Because we can be tempted to look at the early church in passages like this and say, wow, we should be just like that. I wish everything happened just like that. Well, buckle up. I don't know if you want this to be the same case, especially this morning. Because that would be horrifying. It also means that what we read in the book of Acts is actually attainable. It's a real church with real problems. These aren't legends, they're testimonies. Look what it says in chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. This is supposed to contrast what the example of Barnabas was. So here's Barnabas. There's another man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. They sold a piece of property. Very similar beginnings. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back, it's an important phrase, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Imagine being Ananias in that case. You're just given a gift. You're given a check to the pastor and the pastor responds with, why has Satan filled your heart? How do you... Imagine that happening. I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm, I'm, maybe... I don't know. No promises. It may happen. I don't, I don't know. To keep back for yourself part, part of the proceeds of the land, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? And why is it that you have contrived this deed, essentially saying this was premeditated, this wasn't a mistake, you've contrived this deed in your heart, You've not lied to man, but to God. Oof. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Not sure I want to be in that counseling session. That took a turn that no one expected. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. Part two. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what happened. Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. So she deceives too. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? And horrifyingly, the next words, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. 
Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And not shockingly, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Whew. Yeah. (laughs) So we see a similar story happening as occurring with Barnabas. That's why they're both meant to be read together. They both sold their land, laid it at the apostles' feet. Everything's good. You can kind of picture the church service that they were both in where the spirit was at work. Maybe there was an altar call to the front, like, you know, who's, who wants to give their life away? What, are, what, are, what is God calling you to give? And maybe Barnabas comes up, Ananias and Sapphira come up, and they, they pledge, they, we're going to give away this piece of property together. And then all hell breaks loose. So what went wrong? The, the problem wasn't the amount. Right? You know, the problem wasn't the amount that they chose to give, you know, this, this away. Or even that's like, we're going to give you this, this dollar figure. The problem wasn't the amount. It was a freely given donation. They didn't have to give anything. You know, it's really key in the passage. Peter says to Ananias, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Basically, like, this is your land. You don't have to give it away. You didn't have to. You didn't have to give anything. So I don't think the problem was generosity, necessarily. You're free to give as you so choose, or as God has called you to give. You're free to give it. This is not a tax on the church. We're not demanding that piece of land. This was your decision. So it wasn't a problem of generosity. It was a problem of integrity. The key words when he says you've kept back some of the portion. The root of that word is basically used when things, like when someone commits fraud. That's what it means. You've committed fraud. You weren't honest about the dealings that you had pledged to give. You've kept back some for yourself. They masked not how much they gave, but this is the key part. They masked how much they sacrificed. They didn't give it all, and they said they did. Is that how much it was? They didn't give all of it. They gave some of it. So they didn't mask how much they gave. This is how much it was. Here's your check. Just take it. They masked how much they sacrificed. They kept back some. Now, before I get to the main point, and here's the deal. I, like, I don't want like, to be overly complicated here because the reality of this is I have no idea why God cho- chooses to do what he does. He's not like me. Why did God choose to strike down two people for this case? I am not the person to ask. One day you can ask Jesus. I have no idea. I'm going to give some hints as to what's going on. But I have no idea why God chooses to do what he does and why, as I was talking to Colin, why, like, there's a lot of terrible things that happen in the church. Why doesn't God strike down anyone for those? I don't know. I'm not God. So we need to humbly say we don't know exactly why this happened. But it did. 
So here's a couple of preliminaries before we get, I kind of get to the main point of what's going on. First one is this, very obviously. You can't dupe God. You can't deceive God. You can't dupe God. You may come into your church and play the greatest show that you've ever played and act the greatest acting job you've ever, you've ever done and deceive everybody and sing the words and give your tithe and say, man, I am just, look, look at me. I am on fire for God and there's nothing going on in your heart. You can give an illusion of truth and deceive everybody, but the point of the passage is this. You can't deceive God. You can't. As I prayed already in Hebrews 4, it says the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And it says this, no creature, no one is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You can't deceive God. Secondly, now that's not the main point. Secondly, though, what I think you learned from this passage, this is important. The Holy Spirit is your greatest allegiance. The relationship with the Holy Spirit as Christian is a greater allegiance than even to your own spouse. Who was in the know in the passage? They didn't deceive each other, right? They were in on it. I have integrity with my wife, Aaron. Isn't that, doesn't that count for something? But in the passage, Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. It says, you haven't lied to us. You've lied to God. The Holy Spirit is your greatest allegiance that we have in this life. They both were in on it from the start, but their couple bond doesn't supersede their bond to the church or the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I think, we've talked about this a lot in our day and age, that marriage and family, man, maybe that's the greatest idol we have in church, that marriage and family become more important than even our relationship with God. And we hold up marriage and family as like, this is what life is all about to get married and have kids. No, it's not. It's not what life is about. In fact, the greatest people who went across the seas and the one who came and gave his life weren't married and didn't have any kids. Okay? Marriage and family is amazing. It's an amazing gift. But it's not greater than your relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's your greatest allegiance that you have. And even if you show integrity to your spouse, it doesn't, doesn't supersede your allegiance and integrity to your relationship to the Holy Spirit and also to your church. Okay, so your spouse might know how you're doing. But if your church doesn't, guys, you're lying not to us, but to God. Do you understand what's going on here? You know, as we even say sometimes as churches, like, man, churches need more families. No, they don't. Okay? The church is a family. The church doesn't need more families. The church is a family. We love that we have families here, like a nuclear family, but more than nuclear families in the I'm saying this because I'm a dad and I've, I'm a dad and a husband. The church, we love that we have nuclear families here, but more than that, we are a family. Which means, in essence, there are no single people in the church. 
because they have a greater allegiance than just being married. The bond between us runs deep because we're joined not by... By the way, I'm not dissing marriage. I love marriage. <laughs> you know what's going I'm not. I don't want to overcorrect. We're not bonded by marital contract, but we're bonded by the person of the Holy Spirit. That runs deep. Okay, Aaron. Those are great. Thank you for those pointers. <laughs> That's something Sam would say. Okay, Aaron, thank you for those pointers. Great. But this is still pretty severe, right? This is pretty severe. Yeah, it is. Like, why the death? What time is it, by the way? I don't want to go too long. Are you serious? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Why the death? Well, I don't claim to know all. I'm going to fly through. One that wasn't normative... This apostolic age is a very unique time. So it wasn't normal. There's no evidence of this ever happening again. Secondly, as Nikki said at the beginning, God is not like us. He is our creator. Even in the Bible, there's evidence. He is the holder of life, and he gives life and sometimes takes it. And sometimes we know why, but here's the, here's the reality. Sometimes we don't. That's a hard truth. Sometimes we don't know why God chooses to take life. But our hope is not that we're going to somehow find out why. Our hope is that we, God is good. We trust in him, whether he gives or takes life from us. Even though we don't know, always know why. So this is big. This is not regulative. This is not like some model of church discipline that when you come in, we're supposed to take people's lives away from them. Okay? This is not what's going on in the passage. Or we would all be doomed, as Colin said to me before. Luke makes it very clear that this was an act of God. So I don't know everything, what's going on. Here's, here's the real problem, what I think is going on. For this couple, that I believe we have to wrestle with this morning. This is big. You know that life I described back in chapter 4? This is the life that God intended, life to be lived. Here's the big problem with Ananias and Sapphira. We want the results of life. We want the blessing without the cost. We want the blessing of life, like, man, this is great. But we don't want to sacrifice our own. And it becomes a masquerade of life. But a masquerade of life is still death. The problem wasn't a lack of generosity. They wanted the blessing, the credit, the glory behind the gift without having to sacrifice to get it. Man, there's a lot of people in this world. A lot of people who think they know how to bring life to this world until it requires something of them to get it. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about me, too. A lot of people think they know this is, what, this is what the world needs. This is life to the world. But if it requires something of myself, I'm out. But that's how life comes. It's by sacrificing of ourselves. 
I think this is how Satan infiltrates churches and souls causing death. This is, I believe, Satan's greatest temptation. That you can have the life and everything that you want and it will require nothing of you. You don't have to give your life away. This is about you. God, want, God says give your life. No, you don't. You can have everything that you want and you don't have to sacrifice. How did Satan tempt Jesus? Satan leads Jesus up to a high point and says, look at, look at everything. Look at everything. You, you say you want the kingdom of God? I can give it to you right now. All of this can be yours. And you don't have to give your life for it. That's how Satan has tempted people from the beginning. Adam and Eve from the beginning. He said, you can have everything. You can, you can be God yourself. You don't have to give up your life to him. You don't have to give yourself away. See, the church began with a movement of people who were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. Basically saying, like, I'm giving my life away and Holy Spirit, fill, fill my heart because I, I want to live out your, your word and your will in my life. And it says here, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? So Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira have shifted from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Says, now says, Satan has filled your heart. And I believe that even still today, this is Satan's greatest temptation to us and our souls and to the life of the church that causes death, that how he fills our lives. That you can have it, son. You can have it all, and it requires nothing of you. Man, that goes into every part of our life. That I can still live for myself and have everything I've ever wanted. Man, that goes from even in our sexuality. That I can have all the pleasure I want in life and I don't have to... I, it's about me. It's about my own. It's about my own pleasure. I don't have to sacrifice for it. Again, I don't want to over-explain. i got to land the plane. I want to create a little bit of space right now, just like a couple minutes as we end our service. And this may end on an unsatisfactory cliffhanger, but I want to kind of leave us at that space. I don't want you need to tie every, you know, every sermon's got to have every knot tied. Well, this, this passage ends with the great, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Close scene. Like, it seems kind of unsatisfactory to me. Like, give us some answers here. Well, it doesn't. It just says great fear came upon the whole, whole church. And I don't think just for the horrifying results, but for the life that they now knew that it could be taken away. And I believe the passage as Luke writes this is saying, guys, don't lose this. Don't lose this life that you have, that you have created through the power of the Holy Spirit because it could be lost. But I love when Jesus is tempted in the desert when Satan brings him up and says, you can have all of this, it's not going to require anything of you. I love in Matthew 4, Jesus says, be gone, Satan. Get out of here. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God. He is the king. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And Jesus closes it there. He is my king. And if Jesus is our king, it says, the promise of scripture is we enjoy this life even if it requires everything of us. I'll take 
couple minutes right now. You might want to write these questions down. In what areas of my life am I keeping back? Write it down. Are there any areas in my life that I'm, I'm, I'm keeping back? That's solely about me. What have I not sacrificed? Is Jesus truly wear the crown? Or if it's still kind of like, still kind of up there? Because I think that's the point of Acts chapter 5. Take a few, take like a couple minutes, jot some meditations down, and I'll close in prayer. God, you've given us this passage to meditate on. It's a tough passage. And I don't completely understand it. And to be honest, I'm not completely at peace with it, I, even after I read it. And maybe that's the point. Maybe we're not supposed to be at peace with it. Maybe we're not supposed to completely, completely understand it. Lord, may this passage jolt all of our souls this morning. Give us a shock. Oh, man, like what is the nature of my relationship with God? Do I take it lightly? Do I think I can deceive, lie to God? Play a part in this great masquerade of religion? Or is this genuine? Is this, is this real? Lord, I pray that there would be a great shift of ownership this morning. My life is not my own. And the things that you have given me are not just for me to use. They're not just, they're not for me. May there be a shift of owner. May the crown be firmly on the head of Jesus in my life. May that be true of all of us today. Lord, I pray that if there are, if there's even one Who's with us this morning that needs to make that decision say Jesus I want you Lord I've tried I've tried in my life to attain some sort of satisfaction some sort of happiness by all the things that this world can offer but it's left me empty Lord I pray that today would be the day where they say you know I the crown's not supposed to be on my head and they take it off and they lay it at your feet that happen today. God, we love you. We love you in all your goodness. We love you in all your mystery. 
pray for this in your name.